The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli. Cramer is back on Monday. Futures are soft amid uh, another day of record COVID deaths in the U.S. China state funds put a cap on that rally in Shanghai, although we have improved on this additional mortality data from Gilead on Remdesivir. Disney opens tomorrow and oil is back below 40. Uh, David, uh, as Joe was just saying with Savita, it is a reminder of just how starved the market has been for medical news these last couple of weeks. Yeah, well, at least something positive, right, with that rising case count, of course, setting new records it seems virtually every day uh, and uh, deaths also starting to uh, move up in those hard hit states as well with hospitalizations. That's certainly been a focus for market participants, as, as you guys well know. Scott Gottlieb, who we follow closely, tweeting about the remdesivir news, very encouraged, but needs to be confirmed in a prospective trial. Appears to be a retrospective analysis of the phase three data using historical match control, suggesting a survival benefit in severe COVID patients. We've made the point many times, of course, Carl, it is only good news on remdesivir, but let's remember it's an infused uh, therapy in the hospital, typically for people who are severely ill. What we are hoping for and waiting for are significant antivirals that will have an effect on the virus far earlier in its course so that people will um, feel much more comfortable in uh, resuming behavior, because if they were to get it and these were to be available, they could immediately take an oral antiviral, for example, or something very early in course that would kill the virus. We're not there yet. We're wa watching vaccines closely, but we are back, Mike, I guess, on COVID watch overall, given, unfortunately, this distressingly high number we seem to be getting every day of new cases. Even if it is younger cohort, they still do get sick. For sure, uh, David. I mean, obviously on watch, I do think it uh, probably contributes to this sense of unease in uh, in terms of where the bond market trades right now. Right. Ten year Treasury yield down back below 0.6 percent. Uh, also, just this really haves and have nots uh, situation in the markets where anything that's really tightly levered to uh, that aggressive reopening type action has suffered in the last let's say, five weeks uh, or something like that. You had peak optimism about the reopening on June 8th. That was when the S&P made its high, but also when all the, the reopening trades made their high. And since then, it's really just been about, as, as we keep repeating, uh, this migration, uh, this crowding, this hiding in mega cap growth stocks. And, you know, that's probably going to get stretched uh, too far. Uh, you've had Amazon add more than $200 billion in market value this month. And this month is only like six trading days old. So at some point, uh, you know, it gets a little bit unstable having uh, all that all that flow and all that weight uh, at the top of the market and everything else kind of suffering, including, you know, banks and small caps. But for now, it's the market's way uh, of kind of keeping itself supported in this high liquidity uh, environment, Carl. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk more about Amazon uh, as City goes to 35 50, uh, and we'll tell you why in a little bit. Uh, but, David, you know, we're beginning to see some um, big macro desks play a couple of cards on this COVID front. Uh, Goldman yesterday saying 
We don't expect broad lockdowns again. Maybe some people think that's a no-brainer, given what uh, the likes of Mnuchin have told us on our air. But they think that states will be more nimble, close down some bars. Kentucky masks go mandatory tonight at 5 o'clock. And uh, J.P. Morgan as well, once again today, Kalanovic, their big quant, saying um, we, re- we re- retain a risk-on portfolio. We do not think the uptick in cases, although it's a setback, is going to be market negative in the long term. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Carl? And I know you follow that stuff closely. I see some of your tweets during the course of the day, particularly with that J.P. Morgan credit card data that seems to have been so indicative of sort of some of the trends we've seen in terms of spending in restaurants and bars and the case counts following. But I do wonder, Carl, and I, you know, I'm curious, if we get to, we're 60, what, 3,000, I and mean, if we continue to move up and hospitalizations continue to move up and the hospitals in some of these states really do become overwhelmed and we get reports of that in certain areas, but not statewide, um, does that change the approach of that state government? Because uh, there are health experts who say if we do get to 80, 90, 100,000 new cases a day, is that going to change the way it is viewed again? As unlikely as it would seem, given the sentiments from both state and the federal government that we ever would lock down again, it would seem to at least lock down certain behaviors for people if we get continue to get this rising case count. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, Goldman had some numbers out yesterday. Um, of COVID patients, the percentage of hospital capacity in Arizona, it's a quarter of the hospital capacity is COVID now. Uh, 16% in Texas, 15% in Florida. Uh, Mike, ABC News uh, got an internal FEMA memo yesterday in which they found that up to 58 Florida hospitals have no ICU beds. So, uh, I mean, David's point is exactly spot on. It's it's an echo of what we went through in New York City, and we're praying that it doesn't uh, turn out to be an exact repeat. Right, exactly. And I, I think the the puzzle as the markets try to assimilate all that is how much is how much are we already seeing the change in consumer behavior or business behavior? In the, in the real-time data that everybody's tracking already and how much of it is just, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're hoping that some threshold level is not reached where you need more forcible uh, shutdown. So that's, that's the uneasiness uh, that's, that's underlying exactly how uh, this market's been trying to navigate this period. It, it's interesting because, for, in a sense, everyone's getting a pass on the summer months in terms of delivering uh, real-time earnings or anything like that. But you, you have to have the feeling that things are have a path to improvement or we're getting past a, a certain peak. I know, Carl, you keep, it, you keep an eye on Tom Lee's stuff, and he's pointing out, oh, Houston peaked, you know, a couple of weeks ago. If You, you can kind yeah, of yeah, massage yeah. the data in certain ways that make you think that, you know, we can predict how these curves are going to look. Yeah, well, that's as, as Tom says this morning, uh, that's going to be one of the big questions of the weekend is whether or not uh, deaths can maintain that that fat margin away from caseload. Speaking of earnings, David, um, buckle up for next week, I guess, because the banks are on their way. And luckily, we'll have Jim back to talk about it. But a couple of interesting uh, calls on Wells today. Right. Uh, Evercore adds it to the tactical outperform list. Baird goes to outperform as there's this notion that at least when it comes to Wells, if they rip the Band-Aid off, so to speak, as uh, I think it was uh, Evercore said, uh, maybe that does tactically outperform. But next week's going to be wild. It is. And the banks, I mean, 
Mike mentioned, of course, what we're seeing in terms of yields right now. That's not a that's not a great formula for success for the banks. We've talked about some of the banks benefiting from the incredible amount of activity we've seen in debt and equity capital markets. I think there's no doubt you're going to see numbers there that are extraordinarily strong. Merger and acquisition activity, as people well know, has not been that has been muted. And then to the overall interest rate picture and their ability to actually maintain or have a net interest margin that is significant, that is going to be under pressure. And that's why we're seeing so many of these names. And you mentioned Wells Fargo. We've watched the weakness in that stock. We watched a rebound as well, Mike, for some time. But it is yet again below $100 billion market value. No shortage of challenges for Charlie Scharf, although they do seem at least to have answered the dividend question, perhaps not in the way that some had hoped, but they did answer it there. Uh, And so I guess we'll just have to wait and see what more we get from them in terms of earnings and outlook. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really remarkable that, that it's happening to Wells, which now trades at a, a discount to book value that looks very much like City, whereas Wells used to always have this huge premium uh, to book value. Actually, the group as a whole, the S&P bank sector, uh, is at, you know, something like 75 percent of book value in aggregate. It's basically as cheap, uh, if you believe, you know, the, the, the stated book values as it was in 2011 when we had the sovereign debt scare, when yields collapsed. And, and by the way, everyone thought yields would never go up again for, for the foreseeable. So, uh, you know, the, the valuation case is just pretty much all you have right now because everybody has so absorbed uh, all the headwinds. And, yes, the capital markets business looks great. Can we extrapolate that forever? Maybe not. Yeah, they took on a lot of fees from PPP loans. But, again, that's a one-off, too. So it is a really interesting trade. At some point, they just get, you know, the group gets stretched. Uh, too far below what what the rest of the market is trading like. And and we'll see if that has, uh, you know, if if earnings are some kind of a catalyst for for that change in credit losses, obviously what they say about them uh, in the next couple of weeks and projecting ahead probably is going to be the big factor that we can't quite model in uh, just yet. Yeah, I mean, that's credit losses is key, as you say, Mike. And, I, you know, I wonder, are the banks reflecting perhaps a less sanguine view in terms of the course of the virus and the economy? Then perhaps the broader market is because uh, we know the $600 supplement runs out at the end of July. Our credit card balance is going to start to look perhaps worse. Commercial real estate loans, loans to the oil and gas industry. I mean, you can go down a list that can get fairly scary when it comes to reserve, at least reserves, at least uh, pretty quickly. doesn't mean the banks are in anywhere near the precarious position they were more than a decade ago. There's nothing like that. But. When you increase reserves, yeah. you, you, know, you obviously deeply deplete profits. Well, that's what I keep saying. I mean, the fact that the banks are better capitalized and they have that, that cushion that's been mandated. Well, one of the reasons you care about that is because when things get bad, you know, you burn up that cushion because that's what it's there for. So that isn't necessarily, you know, positive for, uh, for, for shareholder returns in, in, in banks while that's going on. So that's, that is why it's the, the big swing factor. Hey, David, um, in terms of... Uh in terms of headcount, I mean, it's been a remarkable week for layoff news out of Levi's, Harley, uh, Walgreens. We'll, we'll find out what happens at United. But there has been chatter about uh, moves that Wells may make. Uh, Bloomberg yesterday saying it could be in the thousands. And they make the point that layoffs are one thing that banks have uh, resisted pretty well uh, in this whole mess. And I wonder if that, if that dynamic changes. I do, too, Carl. I do, too. You know, I think we've mentioned, uh, you know, and I've certainly heard the, the, the conversation around uh, a number of furloughs becoming permanent layoffs, but also corporations using this, unfortunately, as an opportunity 
to what they would say is get more efficient. Uh, when they look at what they've been able to do in a remote environment, when they look at what they've been able to do with only Team A back in the office, while Team B and C are somewhere else, uh, I've certainly heard people wonder, well, maybe there's an opportunity here for us to cut. Uh, and, and, and so you do wonder how much that is going to occur uh, and whether it will occur in light of what's going on right now, given that this is being viewed in part as, I won't call it a throwaway year, but one that is not necessarily being focused on in terms of the earnings power of these companies, it gives them that ability to do it. I think it's a very important issue we've got to watch, not just for the banks, but overall. Yeah, Mike, I mean, we talk about operating efficiency, uh, whether it's uh, salaries and benefits or cor- corporate travel. Yeah. Right? We've been talking all week about all, you know, for the past couple of months about the move to digital, the way we're working at this very moment. Uh, but you got to imagine the what's happening right now in corporate travel departments as their expenses on on moving people around the country basically goes to zero. Sure. Um, you know, and obviously it creates a, a perfect real world experiment to test whether uh, there was, you know, full value being realized from all the from all the travel. Uh, you know, one way to interpret how the market has held up relatively well versus the economy, the, the sort of Main Street economy is, you know, market kind of sniffs out. And this happened in 2009, too, that this whole event has swung the pendulum back in favor of co- corporate uh, books from from labor. So it's kind of a capital over labor story, you know, whether that's to be celebrated or not. It seems like if you were worried about wage pressures coming into this year as a, being a crimp on profit margins, that's one thing you're not worried about right now. Seb. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, it is a summer Friday, but we've got some wood to chop this morning. A new street high on Netflix at Goldman, a street high on Amazon at City, street high of NVIDIA at Rosenblatt. We'll get to all of those. Disney, of course, big opening tomorrow. And will Tesla join the S&P 500? Talk about that when we come back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. It was March 17th when our Courtney Reagan gave you eight names in retail that could potentially file for bankruptcy. So far, half of them have. And Courtney is here to talk about who might be in the next wave. Hey, Court. Hi there, Carl. Yeah, you're right. So there were eight of those retailers in about mid-March that I pointed to on that bankruptcy watch list. Like you said, half of them, they've already made it there, going to Chapter 11, along with several others that weren't necessarily on the list because they were smaller but still well-known names. And we think this could just be the beginning. So about 11 major retailers or brands have filed for bankruptcy since the pandemic shut down much of the country. And they joined five names that did so earlier in the year, including 200-year-old Brooks Brothers and Sir La Tabla just on Wednesday. 
Neiman Marcus, JCPenney, J.Crew, GNC, and others as well. Now, all of these players were weakened and worrisome to many before COVID-19, to be fair, but it was the subsequent store closures that really accelerated a lot of that pain that was already being felt. Asina Retail, that's the parent of Ann Taylor, Loft, Justice Lane Bryant, and others. It has nearly 3,000 stores and is reportedly preparing a filing that will include a large store closure program proposal. Its debt is considered distressed, and interim chair Carrie Tefner did say it's evaluating, quote, all options available to protect the business and stakeholders. It's publicly traded, but effectively a micro cap now. Tailored Brands, that's the parent of Men's Warehouse, Joseph A. Bank, and others. It warned in an SEC filing, quote, if the effects of COVID-19 pandemic are protracted and we are unable to increase liquidity or effectively address our debt position, we may be forced to scale back or terminate operations and or seek protection under applicable bankruptcy laws. So those are just some of the names, but S&P Global does have 18 other names on its distress list. Moody's has 20, and both of those lists include names like Rite Aid, Party City, J. Jill, and Petco. We should note that JCPenney submitted a reorganization plan this week officially to split the company into two parts, a REIT owned by its lenders and then an operating company that will be leaner than the store base now. Now, the court has a deadline of Tuesday to decide if that plan is approved or if assets need to be sold off and then liquidation becomes part of the consideration. So next week's going to be a big one for that 118-year-old retailer. Carl. Uh, Courtney, thank you for that. Uh, it's a tough story. Our Courtney Reagan, uh, David, it does sort of bring to mind what we were talking about before the break, and that is this new target over at City of Amazon at 3550. Their large point is that Amazon of U.S. retail sales made up about 4% last year, and they see it going to nearly 7 by 2022. We see that reflected every day when the PVHs and Kohl's are down and Amazon's up. Yeah, no doubt. And we see it reflected in a $1.58 trillion market value with the stock up 72%. By the way, those are enormous numbers when you're talking 4 to 7%. But of course, even 7% is still at a level there. Amazon can claim, come on, monopoly or anything like that? Forget about it. It is interesting to note, Carl and Mike, of course, when you see that list of, of retailers that have gone bankrupt, how for so many years they were viewed as a... As a, as a uh, Strong investment for private equity, which loaded many of these companies up with the debt that they are now, of course, dealing with. But there was a time when retail was seen as fairly predictable in terms of its cash flows. And many of these companies may have had underlying real estate that private equity thought they could repurpose in a profitable fashion and or monetize in some way. That story, of course, has changed dramatically over the last few years. This has simply accelerated trends that were already in place. And those trends, of course, to your point, Carl, include the incredible rise of Amazon and so many others who are dealing, well, now almost solely digitally with their uh, consuming audience. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say, I mean, the, this bull call on, on Amazon, talking about 50 percent of e-commerce at some point, that's per, perhaps going to uh, build the case for, uh, you know, outsized market power. But just in terms of the the analytical dynamics going on here, the consensus price target coming into today for Amazon was twenty eight thirty. Okay, the stock is at 3193 in the pre-market. If you're an analyst and every single analyst except maybe one has a buy on it, you find a rationale to raise your price target now or you say sell the stock. And who has the guts to say sell the stock right now? So that's what's got to happen probably uh, across the board.
Right. And bear in mind, City was at 2,700, so it's a pretty large lead. Yeah. Take another break here as we get ready for the final opening bell of the week. Squawk on the Streets back in a minute. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. It's going to be a little push and pull here on this uh, final trading day of the week. Uh, Asia was lower, but Europe is green. Uh, concerns about COVID, of course, and uh, record uh, death cases, but some reassuring news out of Gilead. Futures are pretty tight. We're back in a moment. And it's time corporate America paid their fair share of taxes. We thought in our administration we should lower the tax in the high 30s to 28 percent, the lower to 21. I'm going to raise it back up to 28, provide hundreds of billions of dollars to invest in the growth in this country. And the days of Amazon paying nothing in federal income tax will be over. It's former Vice President Biden with his first major economic address in Pennsylvania yesterday, David, talking about raising corporate tax back to 28, tailoring his own Buy America message and basically mocking the number of times that the president has tweeted about the Dow and the Nasdaq. Well, we know this is a president who is very much focused on the markets as a barometer of success. We've seen that firsthand, even at times when we mention something here and then we see a tweet that uh, pertains to the same subject matter. Um, The effectiveness of the 2017 tax cuts is certainly something we've discussed and will continue to. I don't know how much of of a part of the campaign it will actually become, given everything else that's going on right now, whether corporations really did uh, spend a, a lot of money, hire a lot more people than other would have been, uh, otherwise would have been the case, invest more, or whether a lot of it went to uh, corporate buybacks. That will continue to be a question. But what is interesting, guys, is this idea that you didn't need to come down to 21. You could have gotten something done, perhaps at a higher number, save some money. Meanwhile, though, Mike, of course, we are spending trillions right now to keep the economy afloat, uh, not to mention the Fed's balance sheet, although now down to only $7 trillion dollars. Uh, One wonders whether that also will be a part of the conversation in terms of revenues and deficits. It typically kind of falls by the wayside. Yeah, it's interesting because it really is not uh, a tremendous revenue raiser to to increase the corporate tax rate by five or six percentage points, certainly in the grand scheme of things with what we've been doing fiscally right now. It's it's definitely just kind of uh, an element of a populist uh, message and these gestures that say, you know, 
capital has made too much for too long relative to workers. And let's try to even that out. And obviously wealth disparities and everything else that uh, that seem very much ingrained in the tax code. But it is true that we're, we're not really talking about uh, paying for things uh, with these tax increases. It's just kind of, you know, knitting around the edges of uh of the, of the budget. So it is uh, it, it is interesting, probably also why the market, you know, seems to find nothing to outright uh, panic about just yet, because it's so unclear what might a- happen down the road uh, or if, in fact, new spending priorities become more important than uh, exactly how uh, we uh, we raise revenue from from various constituencies out there. Yeah, um, Carl, you know, in, in my world, the Biden, the prospect of a Biden presidency and potentially as well a turn in the Senate figures most prominently, as you might uh, 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 might assume, into the prospect for merger and acquisition activity and whether that whether that would be severely dampened if, in fact, you had all uh, three parts of government in Democratic uh, control. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, of course, whether any of that happens. But that's come up a lot recently in conversations, at least I've been having with the lawyers and bankers and executives who at least think about doing deals, whether or not you would. um, It's already too late at this point, but whether you will see a significant impact or downturn in some way in activity, because there will simply be a lot more scrutiny of uh, of consolidation, given what many say are the negative aspects uh, that it uh, that it brings, including uh, workers uh, for workers. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I'm seeing more and more reports, not about the impact of the outcome of the election, but the impact of the lack of a clear outcome of the election. What happens to markets if it's contested, if it's close, if the results are late? Uh, And that's something that um, is going to have to be factored in as we get, I guess, on Election Day, essentially, because there's no way to know what that's going to look like. There's a look at the open. Uh, Dow up 24 points. S&P uh, up two. We mentioned some of the uh, new street highs, Mike. We mentioned Amazon. And now Heath Terry at Goldman takes Netflix to 670 as the streaming wars are going to heat up. And Heath's been pretty constructive on that name for quite a while. Yes, for sure. So it's essentially um, a way to say stay in. Um, the story remains unchanged. Going to get results from them, uh, you know, within a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, it's virtually assured that uh, probably the sub numbers look pretty good. And it's always remained a question of exactly uh, what return the company's getting on uh, on its own spend uh, and what it really expects on the on the originals and production side, too, because, uh, you know, you were kind of running out of stuff on the shelf. Right. Um, so a lot of that stuff is interesting, but it's just so ingrained as part of this this stay-at-home trade, which is now at a probably record premium uh, against the reopening uh, sectors right now in the market, that uh, it's hard to see what changes it. Right now, there's so many reasons to just uh, not fight this move, I I think. And and the only question becomes across the market is, how much are you paying for the perceived certainty of these business models in this environment? And uh, and it's, it's a tough question to answer. You know, Mike, you've well, been uh, skeptical fit. for a long time. No, I just wanted to follow up, Mike, because you have resisted hard the idea that the balance sheet at the Fed is a major dynamic in, in stock price action. Balance sheets now shrunk for four weeks in a row. If we continue to chop or grind lower, will that will that convince you in any way that I it mean, is related, at least on the margin? I, I, I don't know if it's I, I, what I resist is the idea that there is some real time dollar for dollar impact of uh, incremental moves in the Fed balance sheet and the S&P 500 market market cap. 
in the general sense that the Fed is very accommodative, is going to remain so, and is, and is perhaps suppressing uh, bond yields by buying a lot of bonds out there, of course that's part of the backdrop and it's helping. But why is the balance sheet principally going down in the past few weeks? Swap lines with foreign central banks, dollar swap lines, are maturing and they're not getting renewed. Tell me exactly how that was driving the market here. It's not that's not about like, oh, they're, they're deciding to stop buying bonds. So that's why I feel like it's a little bit of a cargo cult thing. It's a little bit. Hey, look, we found this relationship. It must mean everything. And I don't think it means everything necessarily. Also, I've never had a good answer as to why the Fed throwing money at everything wouldn't just across the board have the junkiest, most leveraged, most distressed assets going up along with the best quality companies in the world. Because right now it's only the best quality companies in the world that are driving this market. So there's a little bit of dissonance Mm -hmm. in that message, I think. Yeah, to that point, Amazon is up again, uh, as uh, as we've discussed in part as well. The the positive research that, that Carl mentioned earlier, Netflix also up. I mean, Mike, you're talking about you know, you mentioned valuation. I guess I'm looking at Netflix now. It only trades at, what, 50 times his estimate for 2021. Is yeah. that a reasonable multiple for the growth rate there? I mean, it's interesting because now you can talk about PEs. You can talk about it's not the problem with Netflix, unlike some of the other uh, big tech names, is it's not as much of a kind of automatic free cash flow story because they they have had uh, had trouble staying above the uh, the positive line in terms of free cash flow. But I think in this context, you understand why people are paying 50 times next year. By the way, I mean, look at some of these names like Zoom uh, and like Shopify that have enormous market values, you know, 50, 75 billion dollar market values when there's not really as much uh, of, a, of a proven record of delivering any kind of earnings. So, you know, it seems like this is the market we're in, for better or worse, David. Yeah, we do. Carl, I'm not quite sure what the multiple is on Tesla these days, but I'm going to guess it's pretty high, uh, although the stock is not up today um, for, the, for the first time I've seen it in a while. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure Mike has more uh, stats on Tesla than I do, but up 500 percent in a year. And today it's uh, Reuters that argues. I'm not sure what they're looking at exactly, Mike, but they say it appears to be on the verge of joining the S&P 500, which would obviously, as they add, uh, unleash a torrent of new demand for the shares that have already had a lot. Yeah, I don't think there's a particular catalyst, except that Tesla will report earnings, obviously, this quarter. And uh, S&P does want to see, I guess, it maybe four consecutive quarters of positive net income or something like whatever the, the, the kind of standards are, either formal or informal, that, that the S&P committee is going to look at. Um, it may qualify. And it's also very conspicuous to have a quarter trillion dollar company outside the index. In fact, you know, between Tesla, Shopify, Spotify and Zoom video, that's half a trillion dollars sitting outside the S&P 500 at the moment. So that's becoming a little bit uh, of, of a glaring disconnect. And it's not a critical point in terms of if you own the index, you're not getting representation. But there's going to be uh, an effort perhaps to find excuses to get Tesla in there. And it's a very, very big company to go in for the first time. Uh, you have to go back to those uh, those periods when you had a lot of like Goldman Sachs coming public along with a lot of mutual insurance companies. We had this massive amount of market value that they had to find a way to get into the S&P. So, um, yeah, I don't think beyond the, the, the profitability streak, it, there's anything much to talk about, you know, that's driving the talk right now. But it makes sense that it's, uh, it's, it's likely a when, not if for Tesla. Uh, it kind Carl, of brings to you know, mind uh, Disney other, 
Go Sorry, ahead, David. Go just ahead. one coda on, on yeah. automakers. Uh, Ford, which was mentioned earlier this morning, uh, according to the uh, U.S. ambassador to Mexico, may have to uh, shut some uh, U.S. car plants if they can't get enough of these engines out of Mexico. Uh, Ford's now back below the 50-day, David, for the first time since May 15th. Uh, so we'll watch some of the OEMs. Uh, I mean, setting aside all stories of just competition, now it's once again about supply, in this case, cross-border supply with, uh, with Mexico. Yeah, supply chains are a are, are, are key thing that, that have to continue to be watched closely. Of course, when it comes to Ford, I always point out the only one of the automakers that did not file for bankruptcy um, and uh, one-tenth, less than one-tenth the size market cap-wise of Tesla at this point. Guys, we were talking about Netflix always tends to bring me to Disney as well. I just kind of watch the competing market cap comparisons between the two. Netflix a, a bit larger right now than Disney, but we are going to be focused on Disney in part because the parks are going to open um, at least to some level of capacity. The parks in Florida are going to open uh, and that will be a key uh, moment for the company. It's moving ahead despite that rising case count or the significant uh, numbers that we're seeing in Florida at this point. Um, the stock itself down about 19%, perhaps not nearly as bad given all the different areas where Disney's been vulnerable and continues to be somewhat vulnerable to all the things that have happened as a result of the pandemic, not just, of course, people not going out, perhaps not being willing to go to a theme park, but even production of movies, a lack of sports for ESPN, things that we've mentioned many times. Um, I think they're probably fairly happy with the performance of the stock. I know nobody's happy when it's down, but given all those things coming at them, Mike, one could say it, it's weathered it fairly well at this point. As you have said many times, it's an iconic name that certainly may get some multiple points simply for that. Well, without a doubt. And, you know, the stock traded well below here uh, when you didn't have all these issues in the past few years, right? Didn't get down under 100 uh, when people are just kind of concerned about uh, various things. I mean, ESPN, the, the strategy with uh, uh, the strategy with um, streaming and all the rest Direct of it. So, consumer. I mean, it, it didn't need all yeah. these things to get under 100 at some point. So you have to believe, yeah, this is uh, this is pretty much uh, a pretty decent value to settle out at right now. Yeah, uh, or I think it's Reuters out this morning with a piece on Disney calling it the ultimate hold because the long term opportunities are so great, even though the park shutdown is such a, a tough headwind for the company. Uh, so we're looking at a bit of a mixed picture here this morning. Dow's up four. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Hello, Carl. Happy Friday, everybody. Uh, a modest reversal of the trend this week, but not a lot of conviction behind that. So I think the main trends are still intact. Let's just take a look today, though. Banks have been awful performers as we go into earnings season next week. But for the last two weeks, modest upside today. Consumer staples better. Healthcare flattish, but the, certainly the Gilead news uh, is, uh, is good news overall for the, the trends here. Tech modestly lagging and China, which has been on a tear all week, down today. We'll get to that in just a minute here. But the trend this week is very clear. We keep emphasizing tech wins no matter what. Reopening good news, reopening bad news. Tech generally does well here. So semiconductors, the Nasdaq 100, Microsoft, which is a proxy for mega caps. Uh, this is just for the week. And S&P growth overall, which is largely uh, into, uh, of course, technology. As far as the laggards here, uh, we've talked about the cyclicals not getting any traction at all, even on up days. Energy, banks, industrials, a small cap, Russell 2000. There's S&P value. So growth up two and a half percent, value down two percent. It's a very typical trend that's really been going on, frankly, for many years. And in terms of what moves the markets, I added a six bucket yesterday. But remember, the news we've been getting this week here, the reopening has been rocky. 
Uh, it's a W, not a V right now. The stimulus, well, it's there, but there may be some less on the way, depending on how the Congress, uh, congressional negotiations go. Treatments are advancing. That's been a definite positive all throughout this, uh, this mess. Uh, trade war with China, still another wild card out there. Uh, and the election, that's another one that I added as a wild card. And of course, valuation, if the reopening does poorly, many stocks are overvalued. So there's a lot of things that are on either side, positive, negative here. And you can see the market hesitating. As for China this week, we've been talking about the wild moves in Chinese stocks, up 10% on the week. Look how contradictory these messages are. On Monday, the China Securities Journal, which is state-owned, called for a healthy bull market. Go out and buy, folks. Yesterday, the China Economic Times, which is a state-owned vehicle, said there was a crazy bull market going on and people should be careful. I don't know what the this is clearly mixed messages here. And I think they've got to get a little clearer idea about what they want the markets to do if they want the markets to do anything at all. Uh, but obviously, they're being very involved. Look at MCHI. This is the broadest Chinese. This is up 10 percent in a week. They can jawbone the market. Official government organs jawbone the market. Otherwise, nobody would care about following what they say. But you see what's going on here uh, and the issues there. Finally, how about a slower return for Wall Street? We have been talking uh, a while for a while about the fact that Wall Street trading desks have been very successful operating at home. The big concern was the Wi-Fi's. The Wi-Fi's have generally been operating very well. Today, BTIG, one of the uh, well-known boutique trading firms uh, in the U.S., run by Steve Starker and Scott, Scott Kovalik, announced that they were not going back through 2020, not Labor Day, through 2020, 100% remote work until they get more clarity on the indoor environment. As to what happens post-virus, uh, post-vaccine, at least half of their staff is expected to combine remote and in-office work on a permanent basis. So this is uh, the first firm I've seen that's announced they're not coming back in 2020. Uh, David, I speak uh, a lot with the, uh, the desk, the trading desk, the buy side desk and sell side trading desk. Generally, I've heard things are going very, very well. And there's not a lot of pressure on people to go back uh, at all, certainly through Labor Day. I'm not sure about past that. I'm wondering, you talk a lot with the M&A desk uh, and one of the, the deal-making yep. desks. Uh, are, is there any pressure you're hearing from people to go back sooner rather than later? Not really, Bob. It's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, Goldman Sachs asked sort of their partners to come back in, in some phases, but I think they've only got 20% in the actual office. Listen, investment bankers do most of their work on the phone or on airplanes. Many of them are happy and, in fact, telling me they're more efficient sitting at home doing Zoom meetings to the extent that that's become a more acceptable way to do things because they're not traveling as much. But being in the office for many bankers is not really that much of a necessity, at least, um, you know, not right now. And, and I, when I hear what BTIG is planning and I hear anecdotally other firms as well, I continue to wonder about, you know, your major metropolitan areas, particularly, of course, New York City and the financial services and so many others. And what that's going to look like when you simply do not have the same amount of workers, even when things are over and done with, as soon as possible, we hope, coming back yeah. to work, Bob. There's just going to be fewer yeah. people working in office buildings, it would seem like. Yeah. And the fear was that the, the Wi-Fi's were going to be the weak link. And back in March, uh, people were terrified that they were going to be over overburdened. Uh, they were going to break down. The messaging traffic would break down. And to a large extent, that hasn't happened. There's been some wonderful technological developments about compressing the message traffic that's been enabling, enabling Wall Street to essentially function very well. And even us, we were given these remarkable devices. We're using them now, David, these, these padcasters, which are glorified 
iPads with very fancy lenses on them, and they've been working very efficiently. And by and large, the broadcasting networks, including us, have uh, have done very well with that. So the only, if there's any good side to this this mess, this disaster, it's the the technology uh, has definitely been pushed and found to be functioning for the most part uh, fairly well. Guys, back to you. Emphasis on for the most part, Bob. Uh, thanks, yeah. uh, Bob Pisani. Yeah. We're watching yields uh, this morning coming off that record low for the five-year. Let's get to Rick Santelli. You know, Carl, as I look at yields right now, it's it just quite impressive uh, from a historic view. Uh, we're under 14 basis points in a two-year, so if we closed here, it'd be a new all-time record low for twos. It's a little under 17. It would be a new record for threes. Five years are hovering at 27 and a half basis points tied for the all-time low closing yield. Uh, sevens did make a new low closing all-time yield yesterday. And if they were to close here at 45 and change, they would make another one. So you could clearly see that all investors' appetites are pointing towards, you know, whether it's high-quality sovereigns, investment-grade corporates, you know, anything uh, that they can get some type of return on and, and consider safe from a principal standpoint. Now, look at a 24-hour chart of 10s and realize that the PPI data was more deflationary than anything else. And maybe when the demand side comes back, that picture can change dramatically. But we saw yields pop up a little bit on the long end, and it really was about the Gilead drug story more than anything else. It wasn't the PPI data. And if you open that chart up to early March, you can see we're down as low today as 56 basis points intraday right before the data came out. And the all-time low closing yield was 54, but we have firmed up. We're basically knocking. We just traded 60 basis points, which has some psychological cliche associated with it, at least these days in investors' eyes. But the big news of late, of course, has been how China's equity markets are, as Bob pointed out, they broke an eight-day streak today, but they were up 10% for the week. But remember, if you go back to 2007, the Shanghai Composite was over 6,000. Let's show a 20-year chart of the Shanghai Composite and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. You can see that, yes, we're down from, what, 29.5 on the Dow to 24.6 or change or so. Yes, we're down a bit, but we're not like half of what we were. So be very careful on what we see with regard to the current oppressive stance of some stock markets as certain economies maybe get ahead of COVID, ahead of us, or some of the various parts of the economy open up more aggressively than others. But in the grand scheme of things, U.S. investors and U.S. equities still reign supreme. Carl, back to you. All right, that is a great chart, Rick. Uh, thank you. We'll see you in a bit. Rick Santelli. Uh, financials and energy showing a little bit of life here at the open. We mentioned Wells Fargo uh, half an hour ago, and it is, in fact, helping to lead the sector up almost 4%. We're back in a moment. The debate about reopening schools this fall is challenging some long-held notions about college bonds. Scott Cohn has that story this morning. Hey, Scott. Hey, Carl. We talk a lot about student debt, but colleges are big borrowers, too. Some $280 billion in debt outstanding. Most of it very high quality, rated AA or better, and much of it uh, tax-free. But take a look at what happened to the normally boring yield chart this spring as the pandemic took hold and rating agencies and investors took a long, hard look at the pressures that colleges are facing. 
we think longer term that demand is going to remain strong for higher education. It, it brings such intrinsic personal benefit and societal benefit, but we are looking at a period of, of real turbulence over the next year and possibly two years. These are the universities that have issued the most debt, the University of California system, the State University of New York, University of Texas system, NYU, and the California State University system. Fitzgerald thinks big brand name schools should be okay for now. It's the smaller ones that are starting to see their outlooks lowered. Uh, the Trump administration's latest crackdown on international students threatening to deport students at schools that aren't offering in-person instruction is yet another challenge. At some schools, these international students are as much as 15% of tuition revenue or more. So some schools are getting creative. The University of Southern California, for example, saying it will let international students add an in-person course free of charge to their schedule this fall if it helps with their visas. Others are suing, including Harvard, MIT, and the California State University system, joining a suit by the state's attorney general. Uh, that system is the largest by tuition in the country. Guys? Yeah, I saw a statement from uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, pretty critical of the move out of ICE uh, just yesterday, Scott. That's a big story. Thanks. It's good to see you, our Scott Cohn. We're going to continue that conversation uh, in the next hour with the founder and the executive chair of ABC Mouse. Let's walk on the streets back in just a moment. TikTok in the news again today. Uh, elite gamer and YouTuber Tyler Ninja Blevins deleting the China-made app over privacy concerns. He tweets, hopefully a less intrusive company, data farming, that isn't owned by China, can recreate the concept legally. Such funny and amazing content on the app from influencers. David, I don't know about you. My kids are starting to show me copycats of TikTok, and I wonder what you made of those reports yesterday that companies looking to distance itself from the Chinese infrastructure. Uh, I think it's interesting and actually important. Uh, this is not an insignificant media company, as we've made the point many times. I think a number of companies that buy on TikTok, buy media on TikTok, are trying to figure out how it impacts their media spend. Should, for example, the U.S. government, as Mike Pompeo has at least alluded to, the Secretary of State, the idea of, of closing it up. Yesterday, there was an outage. I think it affected more than TikTok, but it worried its users in some way that it already had been uh, the plug had been pulled. I, you know, we'll watch how this is, um, how they deal with this at TikTok. Of course, it's run by Kevin Mayer. Uh, ByteDance is the parent company. It is a Chinese company, but they've been really trying to move sort of the weight of their operations in some way to the U.S. if they can, or to another major city in the world outside of China. Um, but it's not unimportant, and it's potentially important for the likes of Snap as well, Carl, which potentially could be a platform that former TikTok users, if they're shut out, go to. Yeah. President, a few moments ago here, David, talking about Biden on his way to Florida. Not a very good stop, so we look forward to it. Tropical Storm Bay is probably going to be hitting a place called New Jersey, a good place, pretty soon. So we, uh, we are on the watch. We're fully prepared. FEMA's ready in case it's bad. Shouldn't be too bad, but... You never know. You never know. But at this moment, it's looking like it's going to be hitting New Jersey fairly soon. And we are fully prepared. And other than that, I'll see you uh, in Miami. OK, thank you. Say it. He plagiarized from me, but he can never pull it off. He likes plagiarizing. 
Uh, it's a plan that uh, is very radical left, but he said the right things because he's copying what I've done. But the difference is he can't do it. And he knows he's not doing that. He can't be the same because he's raising taxes way too much. He's raising everybody's taxes. He's also putting tremendous amounts of regulations back on. And those two things are two primary reasons that I created the greatest economy we've ever had. And now we're creating it again. Okay? That's the president on his way to Florida, as you heard, uh, commenting on the vice, former vice president's speech in Pennsylvania yesterday about the economy. David, uh, we basically have uh, some ping pong action going now, which is going to take us into this uh, final stretch of the election where uh, one responds to what the other just said. Yeah, at a different time, Carl, I think we perhaps would have been focused a lot more on the coming election. But, you know, we are now in early getting to mid-July, so it's coming up. There is uh, finally starting to be some proposals from the Biden camp in terms of their economics. We'll see the response, as you said, and we'll be more focused on it uh, as uh, as the summer comes along and the conventions. I guess the Democratic convention is going to be virtual Unclear exactly what the Republicans are doing at this point, given Jacksonville was their current venue, but things aren't going particularly well there when it comes to the virus. No. Uh, and the Times, with some interesting reporting on uh, the funding of the convention itself in Jacksonville, uh, we'll keep an eye on that. A lot depends, obviously, on the public health picture. Our thanks to Santoli. We'll see him later on this morning. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.